From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. I'm here with Caleb Scharf, who is a professor at Columbia University. He was born and educated in England, received his bachelor's degree in physics from Durham University and his PhD in astronomy from the University of Cambridge. He's currently the director of the multidisciplinary Columbia Astrobiology Center. His research interests include the study of exoplanets, exomoons, and the the nature of environments suitable for life. So obvious relevance for our current inquiry. And also with me is Lucas Mix, who's been on the podcast before, and he's here to join in this conversation, which will be largely about, Caleb, your, your new book published in 2014, The Copernicus Complex, Our Cosmic Significance in a Universe of Planets and Probabilities. So to start us off, could you say a little bit about what was most important to you in writing this book? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I guess the the main purpose of the book from my perspective, and it evolved as I wrote the book, but the main purpose was to try to present an up-to-date, thorough, and reasonably balanced picture of where we're at in this quest to evaluate our place in the universe. And by that, I mean a quest in the scientific sense to evaluate whether what has happened here us, life on Earth, is something probable or improbable, and what that means for our sense of significance in the the broader context. Can you say a bit about what exactly is the Copernican Principle? So in in the context of the book, the Copernican Principle is, of course, due to Nicholas Copernicus, this notion that we are not central to reality, we are not central to the universe. And Copernicus, of course, was trying to solve a mechanical problem, a question of the movement of planets and stars in the sky, and came up with the the notion that the Earth was not actually the the geometric center of existence. But that idea, that decentralization of our place in the universe, and Copernicus probably didn't really feel that it was a, a demotion of our place, but it was a necessary piece of the mechanics of the universe. But that idea that There is no preferred place in the cosmos. There is no center to existence. has been tremendously important for Western science in the last several hundred years. It's centrally important to Einstein's description of the universe using general relativity. And it's become part of our mindset, scientific mindset, that we can't possibly be special. It's this big universe. There's lots of stuff out there. Surely... This has to have happened in some way somewhere else. But the truth of the matter is we don't know. One of the things I loved about the book was I feel like you gave a very balanced treatment when there's lots of people out there um, writing books about how improbable life is and other people writing books about how probable life is. And so uh, just running off a, a discussion that I was having recently with another astrobiologist, someone said to me, Given that only Earth in our solar system, uh, as far as we can tell so far, has life, though we have hope for a couple moons, it seems that life either has to be something that happens improbably in very common circumstances, 
or necessarily in very uncommon circumstances. And so I wondered if you could say something about those two approaches to the question and those two approaches to research. Well, I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it. Um, actually, I hadn't really heard that phrase that way before, so it's, it's great to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, what's interesting for me is perhaps that, that second piece, the idea that it, it will life will occur readily, but in somewhat unusual or improbable circumstances. Because, and it's not my first instinct as a scientist, but certainly in constructing the book, and I think in the research that's happened since writing the book, it's become increasingly clear that at least from an astronomical perspective, the circumstances of the solar system, the circumstances of the Earth, the configuration of our solar system, the types of planets in it, the type of star that we orbit, are somewhat unusual. To have all of that together makes our solar system maybe not enormously improbable or enormously rare, but definitely pretty unusual. And, and frankly, the evidence keeps pushing it in that direction, even more so than in the book. And that, that you know, then that raises the question, so is there, is there a connection between that unusualness and the fact that there is life here at least, but it's only happened, as far as we know, in one place within this unusual system? And then, of course, we can look at the apparent unusualness of the Earth and, and dig into that, or that becomes very tricky. Um, so in a sense, I think that may be the more tractable direction to approach this or to ask that question. Is it that your know, life will happen pretty easily if the circumstances are right, but getting those right circumstances may not happen that often? Mm. You know, the other side, I think uh, you know, that life is just could happen anywhere, but it's just incredibly improbable or very low probability. I don't know how to answer that so easily, if you see what I mean. I, I can, Because right. I can, right now, my access to the universe is looking at stars, looking at planets. Um, I don't have, and I don't think anybody has, a first principles theory for where life comes from. Lots of people are working on that. Um, we're, Lots of people looking at the fundamental nature of molecular complexity um, and things like autocatalytic cycles that can siphon off chemical potential energy from the environment. Uh, but we don't know how this works. And we really don't have a good story for that. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's very interesting, those two ways of, of looking at the nature of life in the universe. I, I know you're not uh, biologically inclined um, although presumably you are biological. <laughs> I'm on my better days. <laughs> you know, you have put a lot of your life and energy into this question of searching for life elsewhere. I wonder, just at a personal level, what is it about life that makes you want to look for it, and what sort of thing could we find that would satisfy that itch in you that you scratch through astrobiology? Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And it's a tough question, I think, uh, because, you know, if I put my pure scientist hat on, I would say, well, look, uh, you look around at what are the big unanswered questions that we have as a species? Um, and one of the biggest is, is there anyone else out there? And where do we come from? And just as a hard-nosed mechanical question, scientific question. But I have to be perfectly honest that, and I think this is probably true of other 
people involved in astrobiology and the search for life elsewhere. There's a there's that personal itch, you know, and it comes from. I'm sure it comes from reading lots of science fiction as a kid. <laughs> I, you know, I've grown up. You've grown up in a time and a culture where these ideas. It's sort of okay to talk about them. I mean, okay, maybe you don't want to admit that you're a Trekkie, <laughs> but but they're part of the the common uh, conversation, and they have been for a number of decades. So I think there's just that, in that sense, it's pure curiosity, and it probably is a selfish thing. It's like, well, do I matter in all of this? Um, you know, <laughs> how do I place myself in, in context at a very personal level? But from a scientific point of view, it's such a marvelous puzzle. And I think in writing the book, this was one of the things that I rediscovered was that you have to fit so many different things together to get anywhere towards answering this question, because you do have to understand something about biology as we know it, but you've also got to understand something about how planets work, how gravity mm -hmm. works, how the universe works. You've got to understand things like uh, complexity and chaos. Uh, so it's, it's just a delicious scientific problem. If I, uh, and perhaps, I guess day to day, that's what really drives it. It's, it's just this deliciously interesting and intricate puzzle to, to deal with. And you get to do all sorts of fun stuff and you get to have conversations with scientists in very different fields than yourself which is always fun. Could you give us a sort of crash course on what the current science is about whether we're alone in the universe, as you might say? Yeah, so I, if I'm completely honest about it, in terms of what we could say at this point, mm -hmm. is we can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not just being facetious. That, that, that is a statement that is backed by probabilistic analyses by the fact that if you look closely, and the book talks about this and other scientists have done this work very nicely, you look closely at what information we have about the nature of life and the fact that it exists here, there's not much. Uh, it happened. <laughs> it happened probably about four billion years ago. Uh, it may have started up more than once, but we don't know. So we have to assume that it got going at least once <laughs> on the Earth. And that is really about it, except for the observation that sometime later along came creatures like us capable of making that observation. Mm -hmm. And you have to be careful with things like that because it can skew your inference, your, your probabilistic inference. But when you go through all of that in a, in a hard-nosed mathematical way, what you learn is there's essentially very little constraint on whether we're the first life in the universe here on Earth or whether there's lots of other life out there. We simply don't have enough information, which is kind of disappointing. And I, you know, when I give talks to the public and people ask that question, and I, I give that answer, and people look really disappointed. <laughs> and then they'll say, well, what do you think? <laughs> I say, well, I, I, you know, if I'm honest, I don't know. Yeah. And that's, that's why it's so interesting. And it, it's particularly yeah. exciting because yeah, I may not know, but I think we're closer now than we've ever been. Or at least we're, we have a better chance now than ever of maybe answering some of these. Well, and we can answer parts in some very interesting way. We can start talking about how common we think planets are. Um, 
how many of those planets, say, have circular orbits, which means that the, the temperature is constant enough over a long period of time that you're not worried about anything alive freezing or, or boiling away. So, so this is, I think, one of, the, one of the interesting challenges. There was a paper that just came out in astrobiology that, that flipped the question. It said, given how common planets are, how improbable would life have to be arising on such a planet for us to be alone. And I thought that was a fascinating way of, of reframing the question. That's right. Yeah. And, and you put your finger on a really important point. And I think that is, again, piece of what I was trying to sort of ruminate on in the, in the book is that, strictly speaking, I can't answer the question yet. None of us can. But yes, we're accumulating all of this information about parts of the universe and, and qualities of the universe, number of planets, the types of stars, the propensity for water to exist on the surface of rocky planets and all this kind of stuff, that has to be a part of the answer. Um, and that, that it's true, that is unprecedented. And we didn't know 20 years ago, we could have lived in a universe where planets were few and far between, but we don't. And the interesting thing about that is it means that the potential for answering the question of whether we're alone is much better than it was. Yeah. <laughs> or we now know that there is great potential for answering that question. Whereas if we lived in a universe where planets were sparse, it would be a greater challenge. So that's kind of interesting. It, it, you know, there is this sense that certain things are lining up, if only to give us a shot at answering the question. <laughs> I wanted to push you a little bit on a, a line from your book based on some of the discussions we've had here at CTI. You say, we are, I think, still unlikely to be central to the universe, either astrophysically or metaphysically. But this does not preclude the possibility that the pathway of emergence that produced us is unusual in its details. We need to get comfortable with that degree of specialness. <laughs> and you've, you've wonderfully, I think, uh, played on the ambiguity of that word special, because we want special to mean improbable, but we also want special to be important in some sort of personal and emotional way. And so we've spoken a little bit about what it might mean to be special astrophysically, um, but you speculate at a couple places in the book about what it might mean to be special metaphysically. I think with the, the take-home message that you don't think we are, um, you say we are insignificant. Um, <laughs> And so I, I guess I would start by asking what, uh, what work is important to you in saying that we are insignificant <laughs> or significant? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a touchy subject, isn't it? I, <laughs> and I, it's interesting you picked that sentence out because, you know, I, and I guess I didn't want to go into a great deal of self-analysis <laughs> in the book, but it's true. I, I find, uh, as a scientist and someone completely given to that way of looking at, at, at the universe, that this notion that there could actually be something special about us in the sense of important, really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It makes me sort of, I'm fidgeting in my seat right now. And, you know, and that's interesting to me. It's something I probably need therapy to explore. Um, but I think it's something shared with many other scientists. And you know, some of that comes out of this, this very literal interpretation of the whole Copernican decentralization, which 
you know, has served us incredibly well in a scientific sense. Um, yeah, so I, I um, gosh, I don't know how to answer the, the, the question of, well, maybe, yeah, perhaps, uh, well, this notion of specialness, um, it's true. I think I, I think about it in terms of probabilities. And when I sit down and, and think about it in terms of anything else, I draw a blank. Um, and that may be because I've not done enough self-exploration <laughs> in my life. Or it's just that thing of, you know, as, as a scientist, you just, it's a piece you can't quite get to. I would say for, for me as a, an evolutionary biologist, there's this question of whether being special means in some way we're off limits for scientific investigation. Mm. And so, you know, looking at the, the history of the Copernican principle, we can say uh, before Galileo, people tended to think that the physics of the heavens was different than the physics of the earth. And the big move that Galileo made and that Newton took advantage of was suddenly if everything obeys the same rules, we can start doing this scientific analysis. And likewise, when you look at evolutionary biology, Darwin is giving us some tools by which we can say humans might not operate entirely by different rules than other living things. Um, and so uh, for good and, and I think sometimes dangerously, but knowledge is always dangerous in this sense, I think astrobiology is doing something like with this with cosmology. It's saying that the cosmos and our place within the cosmos is something we might be able to tackle with science, um, which brings us to this really difficult problem, which uh, philosophers call the demarcation problem. It has to do with what you can do in science and, and what you can't. Um, for me, as a theologian and as a scientist, I'm very interested in having a, a sharp divide, um, but I'm also interested in, in pushing the boundaries. So um, since your book sort of opens up this door, uh, is there anything you want to speculate about on the other side of that door? How you uh, draw the line between <laughs> science and, and non-science? Hmm. It's a very good question. And, and you can probably tell that I've, I've not, you know, I've not analyzed this a great deal. <laughs> kind of barreled ahead in, in doing things. I mean, I, I guess my, my instinct says that you know, time and time again in our exploration of the natural world, there are things that appear mysterious. <laughs> and eventually, if we're lucky, we figure them out. And in retrospect, well, it's not so mysterious. Um, my personal feeling is that it's going to be the case with this thing we call life. And even with this thing we call intelligence. And it'll be along the lines of, well, you know what? Intelligence comes in all sorts of different forms. We haven't quite pinned that down. We were still so biased by our own wonderfulness that we, we, we hadn't really managed to figure this out. And you know the clues were staring us in the face. You, know, you look at an elephant or you look at a chimp or a gorilla or anything. You know, there's, there's a different type of intelligence up to a, a level there. And that's probably, my guess would be that that's gonna be true across the, the universe. Um, but, you know, that, that's me speculating, right? As, as a scientist, I have to admit that's me speculating. But that's my, that would be my gut instinct, that time and time again, you know, things that seem so mysterious to us, scientifically mysterious, once we actually get it, 
it's not so crazy. It's not so so strange after all. As a Trekkie myself, I, I usually say it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> Which is to say, you know, one of the fun things about astrobiology is this exploration. And we will, to some extent, be much happier finding something really weird out there mm. than we would be if we just found something that was exactly what we were expecting. And the idea that, that this exploration leads us to a deeper understanding of, you know, some imagined fundamental rules of what it means to be alive, that's exciting to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. that. That's very exciting to me, too. Um, and it gets, again, to this, you know, what is life? Um, and there's a sort of joke in astrobiology, well, at least I think it's a joke in astrobiology, if you ask a hundred people in astrobiology or in science in general, give me a definition of life, you get a hundred different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a slippery beast. You know, it, it, we know it's a highly complex phenomenon um, with many slightly different colors and flavors and forms and, and layers to it. And that has thus far meant it's eluded simple easy definition so if we start finding you know silicon based life or life that is you know, still based on carbon chemistry but a radically different format you know, maybe it's not based on long information carrying polymers but some other form maybe it's based on you know, buckyballs or something <laughs> um, but it's still clearly life and it hits every mark for what we would recognize as life um, that would be really fantastic <laughs> because that would actually that would create a new conversation about you know, okay so how many different forms of life can there be if we've now found something completely different um, and, and why is that just because this is my own uh, area of particular interest I will say I think we're we're very interested in from a science angle things that replicate that reproduce uh, in such a way that, that adaptation comes about. We're very interested in metabolism. There seems to be something interesting going on energetically. Um, so those, to my mind, are the big sort of science things. But more broadly, I think we're interested in our relationship with things, that we have a particular relationship with other life on Earth, um, be it opportunistically things that we can eat or might eat us, uh, but also when you get to intelligence, things that we can have a conversation with and... Uh, and so there's that relationality piece that comes back to this question of, of demarcation and is that really a scientific question? Uh, if it's not a scientific question, who, who answers it? But I, I will say I get excited about those conversations. Mm-hmm.